0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hello, this is Politics Weekly UK, and I'm your new host, John Harris. I'm a political columnist for The Guardian. And when we began to think about this podcast and what we'd be talking about every week, I really didn't think I'd be kicking everything off by talking about a war in Europe. But that's what we all woke up to today, the news that Russia has invaded Ukraine which clearly, it seems to me, means the world is suddenly entering a new and very frightening reality. It began with this statement.
0: Goal, who, eight years, Followed by explosions in cities
1: across Ukraine. At the exact same moment, at an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council, Secretary General Antonio Guterres made this plea to President Putin.
2: If indeed an operation is being prepared, I have only one thing to say. President Putin, stop your troops from attacking the Ukraine.
1: But it was too late. Putin's invasion had already begun. Boris Johnson responded in a somber tone.
2: Our mission is clear. Diplomatically, politically, economically, and eventually militarily. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. I'm
1: John Harris, and you're listening to Politics with the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Dan Saber, The Guardian's defence and security editor, who's in Westminster, and The Guardian columnist Zoe Williams. Hello to you both. Hi.
2: Hello. Hi, hi.
1: Now, we're recording this at at 2pm on Thursday afternoon. Boris Johnson has made a televised statement outlining the UK response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And he's going to make a statement to the House of Commons later, giving further detail on a new package of sanctions. Clearly, it's a momentous day, and most of us, I think, are still trying to make sense of it. Just to start, I wanted to ask you both, um, where were you when you got news of what had happened and what was the first thing that you read, Zoe?
0: So, obviously, I was in bed when I first got news of it, which is where we all were, right? And the first thing I read was, I think, a piece in Chatham House about fortress economics because, you know, Russia has been preparing to have sanctions and has been under sanctions since 2014, so... The, the the kind of danger of a fortress economy versus an open economy seems to be salient if you're ever going to talk about any kind of sanction.
1: Okay. You were doing deep research straight away. I wasn't that organised personally. I just got back from a 3-day walking holiday in Dartmoor. I was very tired and like you I woke up uh and I looked at the Guardian's homepage at 10 past 6 and saw that this thing that we all probably expected had happened. And then quite soon after I read a I read a comment piece by a a daily and sunday telegraph columnist will remain nameless telling me that this was the start of a new dark age and that was really all he had to say and feeling suitably optimistic i then got ready to come here and do this i'm feeling very weird about everything it it, it rang all sorts of subconscious bells i think from my childhood about the 80s and the cold war and the nuclear threat and all that i could feel those anxieties somewhere in my brain sort of coming coming to the surface again
2: i mean i was actually You know, despite having followed this for weeks, I was actually stunned. Um, uh, It's like you you spend so much time writing, thinking about the the possibility of something. I had a lot of reasons uh, still thought that Vladimir Putin wouldn't do it for a long time. I thought this was a just thought he would not. He was a politician that liked to take calculated risks, but very limited ones. And this is a massive all out risk, if you like. But it looked very, it, it clearly looked very, very dark last night, emotional broadcast from U- Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky.
1: But it's fair to say, is it that on Monday, on Monday or Tuesday, you still thought on balance that something of this scale wasn't likely
2: to happen? Yeah, I thought that for a long time. I mean, a lot of people in the security community here in, in the UK, and indeed in the US, but in the UK, were saying that we really do think something's going to happen. But I just, 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 w- war is such a fearful, frightful thing. It's just, it's, it, you know, it's hard to imagine Maybe there's a bit of kind of normative, normalcy bias in you know in my head, but the idea that we were going to be into the, you know the 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 biggest war in Europe since 1945, the, these are extraordinary things to think about. So when it's at that level, genuinely historical, it's such a moment you wonder whether it really will be around the corner, and then suddenly there it is. It's like you're standing on the edge of a cliff, and then uh, you keep waiting, and everyone tells you you're on the edge of a precipice, and then suddenly you find yourself falling.
1: What the three of us are going to look at today um, is threefold. First of all, how we, or more specifically Ukraine, got to this point, and then what the UK response to this means, what it entails. We'll look back at criticisms over what some have seen as a slow response on, on the UK's part, Boris Johnson's part, to Russian actions. And finally, we'll talk about Boris Johnson and whether this country has the right leadership to see us through our somewhat peripheral and small but important uh, experience of this crisis let's talk about the invasion itself um what's just happened and where this is all going dan just get us up to date with how we got here starting in 2014
2: Yeah, uh, you know, some way back to go but it shows you this how, how long running this conflict is um 2014, there's talk about uh, a trade deal with the European Union, and then the pre- then president at the time, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, is sort of lent on by the Russians to scrap that, do a different deal uh, with with Moscow, which he which he does, and that leads to a you know a revolution basically, the Maidan Revolution, and uh, and, and a sort of, if you like the beginning of a sort of pro Western you know uprising and regime change, if you will, in in Ukraine. What then emerges is a sort of beginning of, in a way, the start of this war. Um, But the way the war starts is not a sort of full Russian attack on Ukraine, as we've seen in the last few hours, but a sort of deniable, uh, uh, low-key, paramilitary-style attack accompanied by local, if you like, um, dissent and and revolt in in the eastern cities of Donetsk and Luhansk. And what we see is this kind of military conflict breaks out, as I say, at this kind of light paramilitary level. R- Russia puts some forces in but pretends it doesn't, but not its full military or air power. The fighting runs on, off and on, 2014, 2015, until a, a peace of sorts is imposed. By that time, Russia's captured the next, uh, you know, no one else recognizes it, but captured the next Crimea. And two separatist states have occupied the area of Donetsk and Luhansk in the east. And after that, there's this all sort of low intensity conflict that everyone forgets about. But Ukraine gradually, sort of, and steadily still wants to look to the West. Um, it wants to join NATO. It wants Western arms. It wants Western capital. It's already a democratic country. And Vladimir Putin doesn't like that. And he modernizes his army and he gets stronger and bides his time and, and chooses to pick his moment. And what was really interesting is that actually everyone's been talking about this for months. British intelligence, US intelligence, even politicians have been warning about this since late November, where we've seen this slow motion, massive military build-up, 150,000 troops, another 30,000 perhaps separatists. Biggest military build-up uh, since, since that Iraq war in 2003.
1: Dan, you're in Westminster now. You're speaking to us from Portcullis House, the sort of other big annex of Westminster nearby. Just give us a sense of how it, how it feels down there in amongst... MPs and advisors and, and so on and what the mood's like
2: I think people are uh, p- people are very anxious there's a big moment to come later today actually when Boris Johnson gives us you know gives a statement but but it's a very you know, people are anxious I think there's a lot of people who want to see Britain you know, a lot of people feel that Britain should be doing more, more heavily involved. I think there's a lot of conservatives who like to see Britain more involved militarily. Um, I'm not sure that's very wise. And certainly on the Labour be- on Labour benches, a much stronger response, sanctions and so forth. Um, although that, that that moment that will come, but that moment feels like it's also it's also feels too late. Zoe,
1: so, did you watch um, Boris Johnson's statement earlier on? Yeah. What did you think of it? Sort of tonally and, and in in terms of the of the impression it gave.
0: So, obviously, he's, he's trying on his kind of statesman-like suit, and he looked sombre and serious in a way that I don't think any of us have seen him, even at the beginning of the COVID crisis. Um, and he tackled some, you know, some pretty big subjects like the price of oil and gas, the, the kind of public sacrifice in soaring prices and sanctions. Um, though whether or not he'd really thought them all the way through, I would be hesitant to say.
1: Right. On that though, let's talk about sanctions here's james cleverly the, the conservative foreign office minister on bbc breakfast this is an invasion um, this isn't a defensive measure this is an aggressive measure and it will be responded to by the international community in sanctions as i say an unprecedented punitive set of sanctions he is claiming cleverly is claiming that this sanctions package is already having an effect He says that because of the announcement that it's coming, we've seen the Russian stock market, the equivalent of the FTSE, drop by over 30%, and that's a huge reduction in Russia's economic abilities to fund this invasion. How effective do you think a package of sanctions of the kind that James Cleverley has explained is likely to be, if at all?
2: Wasn't he talking nonsense there? I mean, the sanctions that Britain have announced (laughs) against uh, Russia thus far have been sort of laughably limited, and actually the EU announced tougher ones. These are the ones that are announced on... Tuesday, you would imagine now, you know, we're seeing a full invasion on multiple fronts. So you would, going forward, you would imagine seeing a sort of, you know, full and comprehensive package of sanctions, which has been discussed between the UK, the US and the EU. Um, Russia feels quite confident it can manage that sanctions. It's built up, you know, oil prices are, have been high, partly because of this crisis. Um, they built up a lot of, you know, uh, currency reserves. Um, they feel confident. I mean, sanctions had, a, on the other side of the ledger, sanctions had a massive impact on Iran, mostly affecting the ordinary people though. Um, and I would be surprised with all this warning. If you were Russian and you're rich and you could move your money, you'd have moved it out of Britain and the West and somewhere more congenial, wouldn't you?
0: That's the salient point, right? There have been sanctions against Russia since 2014, since that last Ukrainian incursion. And the the living standards effect on Russian people has been immense. You know, it's a kind of 9.3% drop in living standards. But the... There has also been a huge build-up of capability. This is a period of eight years, so you're talking about massive agricultural self-sufficiency, massive energy self-sufficiency, and massive military self-sufficiency. I get that, Dan. I get if you were smart and you're an oligarch, you would have moved your money already. But I think that you know, kind of partial Putin supporters who have kind of distanced themselves, but still have connections to the to the. Kremlin and the deep and the Russian deep state they they will feel it if they are if they feel that Britain is closing down their resources they will feel it and they will put pressure on Putin but I don't think Putin's going to feel any real pressure from a decline in living standards because he's weathered that.
1: Dan mentioned um, around a moment ago I mean there's a big sort of question by way of context hanging over this is whether sanctions have, have in recent memory anyway have ever been effective
2: Sanctions are a must in this scenario in that what we've seen is, you know, an invasion is such an egregious <laughs> breach of, 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 I don't know, international decent behaviour. That's not the thing that's going to turn the tide. And I think that what might have made a difference, although it would have been, uh, you know, controversial in some parts of Europe, what might have made a difference would be supplying more arms to Ukraine that would have had a deterrent effect. Because although Russia's got irritated by the arms the West has supplied to Ukraine, nevertheless, uh, you know, a few anti tank weapons when Russia has thousands, even uh, over 10,000 tanks potentially. Uh, uh, you know, some anti tank weapons is just only has a limited deterrent effect. And the reality is that the Western policy has failed, isn't it, here?
0: But there's also the, the argument that, you know, one thing that is a threat to Putin and one of the reasons that he's making this incursion into Ukraine, which isn't, which is beyond kind of saber rattling to NATO and trying to kind of realign Europe around. Who's more powerful between NATO and himself? Is that Ukraine posed a democratic threat, and it, and it kind of enlivened democratic movements within Russia? And the single biggest threat to his rule, really, is a, a sort of revolutionary energy from his own people. I think the Pincer Movement of his oligarch friends turning on him, and there seeming to be real ferment in the in the you know gr- Russian grassroots, is actually high risk for him.
1: To be slightly more parochial about this in terms of uh, the effects of this crisis and of sanctions on Britain uh, among plenty of other countries let's talk a bit about the the likely effect of what's happening on gas and oil prices. Now already um, Brent crude oil has hit $105 a barrel for the first time since August 2014 Um, the increase signalled a further rise on garage forecourts to a record-breaking retail price for unleaded petrol of more than £1.55 a litre Clearly, this is having pretty drastic effects on an already pretty painful cost of living crisis. Um, Tom Tugendhat, the, the Tory MP, said this morning that the conflict would affect the cost of living for people living in the UK in pretty direct terms. And he widened this beyond energy in the question of food prices. He said that 10% of the world's wheat is grown in Ukraine and the idea that this year is going to be a good crop, I'm afraid, is for the birds. This is absolutely one of those moments when we're going to see the cost of living crisis driven by war. And therefore, I start to wonder about what what would be the likely popular reaction to this. I read someone this morning comparing what may be about to happen to the energy crunch of the 1970s. Now, we all know what happened after that, the OPEC oil shock of 1973, specifically, that had huge political effects, which are arguably still playing out. The end of the post-war consensus, it laid the ground for the arrival of Thatcher and Reagan, the sort of end of, of, of the politics that had come after the Second World War. Do you think that we might be facing something as serious and as deep in its effects as the, as the energy crunch of the 70s here?
0: first of all you know you say they lay the ground for Thatcher and Reagan they lay the ground for people accepting anything so long as it was different but it didn't lay the ground for Thatcher and Reagan as a worldview, just as kind of no, no, oh, no, but there was,
1: a, there was a, a huge seismic political shift. and social disruption. It was a seismic
0: political and social disruption, but um, the, the notion that it would just necessarily turn people into kind of free market fundamentalists, no, I think, is wrong. who knows? Secondly, of course... No, I didn't the, mean that. Second, I just meant that
1: Thatcher and Reagan was a big change, and that's, and that's what but caused secondly,
0: it. secondly, part of Putin's um, rationale and motivation is that fossil fuels are obviously on the way out, right? They might not be tomorrow. It might not be in 10 years' time, but they are... As it's the stated objective is to move away from them. So there is it I don't think it is the same kind of catastrophe in terms of energy prices and energy usage. I think it will accelerate it will accelerate kind of renewable reliance to to, to, to a significant degree, and I'm not that's not me saying, look on the bright bright side. I'm saying that you know that was a direction anyway, and that would so you're just accelerating in that direction.
1: yeah, that's a good point. So the government is talking about very serious and sweeping sanctions, but that isn't really the impression we were getting only about 48 hours ago. On Tuesday, Boris Johnson announced sanctions against five Russian banks and three high-net-worth individuals, all of whom had been sanctioned by the USA some years before. And he was met with a criticism that this was really not enough. There was a a comparison that straight away became a cliché, which was that he was bringing a pea shooter to a gunfight. This is David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, speaking in the House of Commons on February the 23rd.
2: It's a shame, great shame, that here in the UK we are regularly described as the money laundering capital of the world. It's shameful that our US allies have said that they're concerned the influence of Russian money has compromised us. It's shameful that the Tories have failed to stop Russian money from turning London into a laundromat for ill-gotten gains.
1: Where does that sort of sit in all this? In the sense, Zoe, that Boris Johnson has come out with, it seems, quite a robust response to all this and is talking in these very sweeping terms about the strength of Britain's response and so on. And yet we all know... What sits under this?
0: Well, look, it's, really, it's it's really insane, and actually, the person I really <laughs> felt for was not was not Johnson, who hasn't obviously submitted himself to careful questioning, but James Cleverly, who was on, who was doing the rounds this morning, trying to explain why it didn't matter that that the Tory Party had had these massive donations from the Chenukins, from the from Victor Fedotov. Because they had all distanced themselves, you know the 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 Chenukins are British citizens. They haven't lived in Russia since 2004. But Cleverly's response is: so they can't be anything to do with Vladimir Putin. So actually, them giving us money is proof that we're sort of anti-Putin agents. Because otherwise, these. Russian dissidents wouldn't want to give us money. Now, this is fanciful. It's ridiculous. And it's going to just keep on, in a, in a sense, you can only deal with what you've got. You can't go back in time and say the Tory party should never have taken that money. And you can't go back in time even four months and say the Tories should have accepted that they took that money, but still led a more trenchant response. You know, they, they, they are in the bind that they've made for themselves. And it's very difficult to see how they get out of that.
1: What, uh, Dan, what's your interpretation? of the extent to which those donations from wealthy, uh, albeit UK citizens, Russian individuals to the Conservative Party play out in politics. Do you think there's any sense in which you, one can see that clearly?
2: I think there's two the, the two ways to look at this. I think, you know, does a donation no, normally lead directly to a policy favour? Uh, well, rarely it does, or sometimes one, you know, a good journalist could spot one, but that, that's not how, how these things work. What what donations do, in a way the Tory party is a metaphor for all of Britain here in its ranks of professional services for the city of London, for lawyers and all the rest of it, which is that it, 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 cre- it kind of creates a sort of soft power, it's a sort of normalisation of the kind of Russian involvement in the sort of Brit- British political sphere. So, you know, you have people who've come often from Russia or former Soviet Union, perhaps that's where they make, that's often where they make their money, but, the, you know, they're naturalised here, they're, they say they're distanced from the regime and they start donating to political to the to the Tory party, become part of the establishment, part of the first a part of the warp and weft and that, you know, that, 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 that's okay. It, you know, and suddenly it's like, so that, that a lot projects a benign view more broadly of Russia. A Britain that is, was relaxed about Russia is a Britain that allowed, was one of the countries that allowed Vladimir Putin to think, I can get away with things, including, I'm afraid to say, invading Ukraine.
1: Because so I, I, it leads on to a question I wanted to ask, which was about why Britain and British politicians specifically allowed this to happen. It feels like it was a result of a mixture, I suppose, of, of, of a worship of the city, the idea yeah. that any money is good money, but also perhaps the absence of watchfulness on the part of conservative politicians about this, the sort of lack of interest or of alarm in how much Russian money was coming into their party. It seemed to me said something about the the sort of decline in how much people are prepared to defend liberal values,
0: yeah, well, I certainly... and to sort
1: of enforce them and live them out, and say we're not, we don't want this money, but also because this you... compromises what Britain is meant to be.
0: The thing is, I think it's it's interesting, right? Because there is a. As we've kind of established, there there is a long and proud history of British politicians just taking any money they can get from wherever they can get it, and answer, and, and, and kind of thinking, well, you know, as long as it can, as long as I can tick the boxes, this is going to work. What's weird about about the kind of Russian influence on British politics is that it's not just the kind of big two million, big two million pound di- donations from single couples to the Conservative Party, and it's not just very lavish spending at Conservative Party auctions so you can play tennis with Boris Johnson. It's it's at a constituency level, MPs are getting five or six grand for their offices. Really peculiar that, that 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 has become acceptable. And I think that's become a really drip, drip, drip effect. I think that's the kind of soft power t- suddenly
2: showing itself. I think what's interesting is there are no shortage of critics in the Conservative Party. You know, you've got... Um... You know, Tom, you know Tom Tugendhat for example chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee you know very you know Foreign Affairs Committee multiple reports one called Moscow Gold I think you get the idea but again you know very critical about this Bob Seely, another member of the committee uh, uh, Conservative MP very anxious about this but these are the people who are on the fringe you know on, on, on the you know serious parliamentarians but nevertheless on the fringes of the Tory establishment I suspect there was a desperation you know we just need the money and we're not too bothered about where it ca- where it came from and I think that's been a reality of political parties funding. It's always been, it, there's always been scandals and it's always been an Achilles heel of the political system in this country, um, not just around Russia. There's one
1: last but quite sizable question on this score, which is just about whether we can imagine the sort of clear out of Russian money from London specifically, but also from the Conservative Party. Is it even a realistic
2: prospect, Dan? I think that we are going to have to imagine a, wor- a world without Russian money and a politics without Russian money in the background, because I think that's what we're going to see. We're moving much more towards a suddenly, uh, you know, great the world of great power competition, a world like the Cold War, of course, with China also in the background, where we're going to see, you know, greater divisions on a global basis uh, rather than this rather over optimistic coming together that we th- end of history moments that we, we thought would follow from the 1990s. So talking about imagining this sudden and very new political future, there's
1: one person who, in theory at least, is gonna have to do a lot of that imagining as far as Britain's concerned. And that's clearly Boris Johnson, who's gonna be leading us through this, at least for the immediate future. And that brings us to our final segment about British leadership in the midst of this crisis. Um, Let's uh, remind ourselves of one small part of what Boris Johnson said around lunchtime.
2: It's an attack on democracy, and freedom in Eastern Europe and around the world. This crisis is about the right of a free, sovereign, independent European people to choose their own future. And that is a right that the UK will always defend.
1: Now, inevitably, when people um, are talking about the gravest crisis for Europe since 1945, I mean, those historic echoes prompt a pretty obvious question, which is whether we have the kind of political leaders with enough substance to see us through a crisis of that sort of magnitude. I was very struck watching and listening to Boris Johnson at lunchtime that this is the same person who, like four or five days ago, it was all about filling in questionnaires sent to him by the Metropolitan Police (laughs) and how long he had the can of lager in his hand for at the alleged social event and all that stuff. You know, That's been the nature of the image that Boris Johnson whether willingly or not, has presented to the public for the last, what, two or three months? And now he assumes the mantle of a sort of international statesman, right? So is, that's quite that's quite dissonant.
0: The, 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 I think what's interesting is that these stories seem very dissonant and very unconnected. That, you know, he's, he's, on one hand, he's party Boris, who's betrayed the country and was on the ropes. And on the other hand, he's now doing a kind of, he needs to be statesman-like. And he is assuming that mantle because, he, he, you know, there's no other way to be in this situation.
1: Do you think, But do you think it, it rang true to the people watching it today? I just wonder sometimes, you know, it's in the nature of my job that I sort of get immersed in Partygate and I see Johnson for a long time exclusively through that prism. And so then Uppy Pop's talking about Ukraine and a large part of me can't take that seriously. But I wonder whether the general public feels like that. Or do they see someone giving a reasonable account of the British response? It's well put credible historical comparisons, and he's given a reasonable account of Are himself. Are you
0: asking whether this has cut through?
1: Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I but also also whether people take him more seriously than Guardian journalists who inevitably have a somewhat malign view of him would be inclined to do. What do you think, Dan?
2: I, I think Boris Johnson could do the rhetoric fine, even quite, you know, quite well. The question is whether it's sort of backed up by you know, real political action. And I think the problem is he sort of seems to sort of consistently struggle with the you know, with the grubby business of government, you know, and he struggled through. You know, struggled through COVID. Lots and lots of lots and lots of decision missteps. Uh, Afghanistan was an absolute bet. Was an absolute mess. Um, you know, and here, here we are with another massive. You know, foreign foreign policy challenge. Um, uh, you know, they flunked it really with this sort of. Minimal is rather rather irrelevant now, really. But but this sort of flunked it somewhat with this minimal sanctions package at an absolutely critical moment, which is when Putin was just you know had put all his forces in place and was deciding whether to go in or not. Uh, so that was a bit disaster earlier this week I, I think the question now becomes what, what happens next there have been these threats of sanctions but it hasn't stopped him there's been no real deterrent stopping him invading a democratic country so where and where, when is he going to stop and is Boris Johnson the man who can really stand up to him as opposed to doing a nice you know 90 second broadcaster camera in Downing you know Downing Street which is just performance isn't it and, and I'm, i that really worries me that, that really worries me about
1: sort of stamina and consistency and, and, and seeing it through and so on yeah and yeah, exactly and honesty, right?
0: I because mean, you know, that was—that's the, yeah. the other
1: point. I, that's yeah. the other thing I wanted to to raise in the midst of that of watching that ninety second performance a couple of hours ago is that, like everybody in in the in the so-called West, Johnson is framing his response to this in sort of moral terms. He's trying to tell us that there's this unbelievably nasty regime that has no respect for the rule of law and a talent for misinformation that's just on this awful thing. Now, the problem is, yeah, yeah, although it's yeah, not yeah. on a Putin-type scale on both those things, he has form, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. But then I think, I mean, that's sort of... I'm, I'm taking a little bit of optimism from that because the thing is, is that... Whenever he was doing something, you know, dodgy or undermining the rule of law, it was always like, oh, well, you know, normal people don't care about the rule of law anymore. They, it was always underpinned by normal people in your red wall. Yeah, they and suddenly care we care about, to the point
1: yeah. that, our, that our petrol prices have to go up yeah. because we all believe so fervently in it, Yeah, right? so
0: I feel, I feel like possibly... I'm sure he won't be equal to the task of what's ahead, but it might change him a little bit in what he thinks is acceptable in politics.
1: This is a big, big shift for many, many reasons. But one of them, it seems to me, here and in the States and elsewhere, is that it it feels like a big shift away from things that peaked in yeah. 2016,
0: yeah, 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 with is, Brexit is it, is and Trump a and the against... sort of
1: peak, a, a peak of so-called right-wing populism, which was was the idea that the world now was every country for themselves and that uh, international multilateral institutions really, really didn't count for much anymore. But it's also so, at so, the suddenly, of that is, but so, strongman is the but-
0: strong man, right? That's that's the whole thing. So whether you, whether you, whichever tendril you follow from that, the thing at the centre is I'm the boss, I'm the strong man politician, and that's kind of Bolsonaro to, to Putin to Trump to Boris Johnson, actually. That's, that's the shtick. So once you say that shtick is no longer acceptable, I think a lot of stuff comes tumbling down. But
1: one of those alleged... Strongman, and arguably the weakest of the international strongman, Johnson is, is himself Johnson. is now yeah. telling us that we're back to a world of international cooperation and and global engagement and all of that. Dan, this is this is quite an about turn, isn't it?
2: Well, uh, look, and, and you absolutely have to be. I think that, you know, right now, you know, sanctions wouldn't be credible without the US, the UK, the EU, you know, countries like Canada too, you know, working together. Uh, a military, any kind of military response is not credible without the involvement of the, you know, without the involvement of the US, without allies working together. You know, Britain's been sending more troops to Poland, to Estonia. I think we're going to see more troops deployed in Eastern, Eastern Europe. So you know, NATO has been revived by this crisis and given given a new purpose. But you can also see what a it's another way of thinking about about Brexit as well, because uh, you know Britain Britain departing the EU weakened the EU, not not you know you know not seriously perhaps, but but it certainly weakened it. And and, and a divided Europe is to the advantage of you know Russia and, auto, and threatening autocratic regime in the east. So you know, this is a moment where people have come together already throughout this crisis and it shows how important working together internationally is. Uh, and that is, that, that is a sort of slight comfort, I think, um, you know, the yeah. way the West has responded to this crisis. But, I, but
1: there's a question here about the public. I mean, that takes care of the politics of all this, but particularly if you're talking about the war and sanctions affecting people as directly as a huge further increase in energy prices and food prices and so on. And then suddenly the government is talking in very different terms from the way that it's been talking for the last three or four years about a crisis in a country a long way from here and the necessity of international cooperation and agreement and so on. Whether the public will sort of understand that and be accepting of it. Well,
0: accepting of the-,
1: the... The need for us to make sacrifices in the in the cause of an, of, of solving... The problems of Ukraine and a wider international crisis. not That's not the world that Brexit told us we were going but, to be living. Well,
0: in. a, I'm not sure that that's. I mean, however hard you try and frame it that way, there isn't. That isn't what's going on, is it? It's not like you have to make sacrifices to your standard of living in order that we make a moral response to Vladimir Putin. There is no world in which you make no moral response to him and your standard of living stays fine. <laughs> um, so I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if that I don't know if that's going to make the difference what I would worry about I, I worry slightly from from the opposition point of view that we've had like it's, it's, it's six years now when we had we had four years you couldn't move on until we'd sorted about, out Brexit then you had two years we can't do, do anything or think anything until we've sorted out COVID and now we're going into we can't do anything or th- th- look at the future or talk about the future or oppose until we've sorted out Ukraine And and, and that I think is a real bear trap
1: And I just wanted to end by by reading you a quotation. Um, The former BBC broadcaster Andrew Marr has written um, this week an article in which he says, success for the Kremlin means pushing NATO out of the Baltic states and Poland and returning most of the former Soviet bloc countries to Russia's tutelage. That's huge, terrifying stuff, if we believe it. Do you think that's where Putin would like this to go? And then I suppose... Joined to that is another question, which is where it, where it will go realistically in the in the immediate future.
2: The thing, I think the thing that matters at the moment is 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 how let's see how this military campaign unfolds. I mean, if it is the case that 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 Russian forces are at the gates of Kiev in, in forty eight hours and, and and the Zelensky regime collapses, you know, fairly quickly, uh, 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 then it might well be the case he suddenly feels you know Vladimir Putin feels emboldened that this was a great success. There has been some. Talk about whether you know Russia might go on and uh, attack Moldova uh, uh, as well. Well, again, you know, I would have been I was very sceptical of you know a few days ago, but now I'm now, now I'm not so sure. Moldova is not, of course, not part of NATO either. So then the question is, would would, would Putin go on and and and, and 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 attempt to sort of threaten a, you know a NATO country? I think that would be that would be quite the um, that would be quite the moment I think, and would be you know quite a step. But then again, maybe if you're fast-forwarding a couple of years maybe and Joe Biden's been defeated by, I don't know, let's call him Donald Trump, uh, 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 Donald Trump were to come back in the White House, you know, things could be very different and Vladimir Putin might feel very confident. If it takes a long time, in, if, there's, if there's a long struggle in Ukraine and it starts to look like Afghanistan or Iraq, which is what, you know, Britain and America very much hope, you know, where where suddenly... Uh, you know, Putin will win that initial victory, but but the body bags are going home, and uh, the morale, you know, and the morale is being sapped. Then, then we're in a very different we're in a very different place. But we just don't know the answer. I don't think we know the answer to that yet. I think we'll get a clearer idea though fairly soon.
1: Fairly soon might be next week when we return on Thursday um, with Politics Weekly UK. and Either things will have become even more confusing, or there might be that little bit more clarity. We shall see in the midst of this. Very nerve-wracking, terrifying crisis. Thank you for joining me, Zoe and Dan. And I just want to end by saying, if you want to follow coverage from our correspondents on the ground, please listen to our sister podcast today and focus on Friday. They'll be talking to Luke Harding and Emma Graham Harrison in Kiev and Adam Drew Roth in Moscow. And make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly American. That's also out tomorrow. That's all from us. You can join us every Thursday.